DW Living Planet with Sam Baker. Welcome to Living Planet. Thanks for joining us. Perhaps this year will be the one when humanity finally, fully wakes up to the reality that climate change is happening to us right now. From heat waves to drought to wildfires, this human-caused global shift is endangering people's lives today. One particularly stark way our decisions to continue burning fossil fuels is harming us is in places where wells and lakes and rivers are running dry. Fresh water is one of the most fundamental necessities for human life. Without it, we can't survive for more than a few days. In East Africa, people are being forced to flee their homes and endure long and sometimes deadly journeys to refugee camps in search of water and food. Their fields are parched and their wells have dried up. When we lost our livestock, we lost our minds. We can't live without our livestock. We were walking and walking. My son was very thirsty and exhausted. He asked me many times, Mommy, water, Mommy, water. He started gasping, but there was nothing, no drop of water I could give him. Not only are people on the move due to drought, it's also flaring up in the form of conflict around the world. Northern Mexico is already a dry desert. In many regions, water is so scarce that it needs to be supplied to communities via delivery tanks. In addition to climate change, years of political mismanagement and preferencing certain industries over others have exacerbated the problem of water actually reaching citizens. Battles over water distribution have broken out between residents and corporations, and sometimes even criminal gangs. Like those in other drought-ridden communities around the world, this is worrying citizens and forcing governments, whether they like it or not, to address how they manage their most precious resource. Jenny Baca reports on the water emergency in Mexico. Her report is presented by Inica Mules. The residents of Constituyentes del 57 can finally breathe a sigh of relief. It's the first time in three days this poor neighbourhood north of Monterrey has received a visit from a so-called PIPA, a water tank filled with 10,000 litres of clean, fresh drinking water. Lara has been standing in line for two hours beneath the sweltering sun, equipped with over 30 10-litre buckets. She'll have to carry the field buckets home later in the 37-degree heat. The situation is very difficult. There's no timetable for the water trucks, so no one knows when exactly they'll come. I often have to choose between going to work or getting water. If I go to work, I might miss the water truck. For the past six months, not a single drop of water has come out of the taps in this community. But this isn't an isolated case. The worst drought in 30 years has left hundreds of thousands of people without water. Monterrey is Mexico's second largest city. The country's most important industrial metropolis is growing rapidly. But the water supply can't keep up. Two of the three surrounding reservoirs, which serve the population of approximately 5.3 million, have already completely dried up. 
In the countryside, the situation is even worse. Three hundred kilometers away, in the rural region near Torreon in the state of Coahuila, residents here haven't witnessed water running from the tap in years. But the much-anticipated pipa deliveries are even less frequent here. In some places, the precious commodity is even intercepted by criminal gangs. The water that does manage to reach the municipality is getting more and more expensive. 10 litres currently costs 10 pesos, or around 50 euro cents. For many residents, like Alberto Silva, the price is simply too steep. I earn 80 pesos a day. I would have to spend all of it to buy as much water as I need on a daily basis. How am I supposed to pay for this? Then I won't be able to eat. But we really do need water. The World Health Organization recommends a minimum daily requirement of 100 litres of water. That adds up to just under 5 euros a day. For Silvia and other residents, this is unaffordable. On top of this, there's no end in sight to the ongoing drought. Of the little water the community has, dilapidated pipes in households means it can't even get to where it's supposed to go. Lawyer and water activist Miguel Angel Hernandez believes corrupt politics is to blame for the deteriorating situation here, which has been ignored for years. Half of the tap water gets lost along the way. It just seeps into the earth. We have serious legal, regulatory and technical problems. What do the authorities need to do? They should install a functional system, which means investments need to be made in treatment areas and water pipes. In Monterrey, too, residents are angry. They're accusing politicians of favouring large corporations who were granted generous water concessions by Mexico's neoliberal former presidents. Loud protests outside the corporation's headquarters are now commonplace. Water management researcher Edgar Gutierrez believes these concessions are no longer up to date and is calling on politicians to introduce stricter regulations. Our constitution must guarantee access to water for everyone. But at the moment, politicians are definitely prioritizing corporations and all types of industry. According to research from Mexican media platform PopLab, the country's major industries have access to twice as much water as private households. The current water shortage is by no means simply a climate crisis. It's a political crisis. Because water is flowing for the agriculture industry, as well as big beverage manufacturers like Coca-Cola and Heineken. But even if climate change isn't the only cause of the water scarcity in the already dry region, climate extremes are still expected to increase in northern Mexico, warns hydrologist Jürgen Malknecht from the Monterrey Institute of Technology. This means plans need to be put in place now to ensure the region can properly store its water supplies in the future. El crecimiento clásico es, la ciudad crece rápido. 
When a city is constantly growing, the authorities are always thinking about where they can get more water, from rivers, reservoirs or underground sources. But I think we urgently need to rethink this approach in the future. How can we recycle the water and use it again? According to research from PopLab, many industries in Mexico discharge their contaminated and unfiltered water back into the environment. It's the paradox of Mexico's water crisis. Some have so much they take it for granted, while others struggle to afford enough to quench their thirst. Right now, about 80% of Mexico is gripped by drought. We want water. Water is life. If nothing changes, then we need to get away from here, says Ofelio Iveros Infante, a resident of a small village in the Sierra near Torreon. And he is just one of many who are considering leaving their homeland if the situation doesn't change. Europe has not escaped this summer's high temperatures or pressures on the availability of water either. Some are saying this could be the worst drought the continent has seen in 500 years, leading to record lows in rivers like the Rhine here in Germany. This mighty river passes just by our office here in Bonn, Germany, and my DW colleague Neil King has been reporting on the Rhine for his most recent season of the podcast, On the Green Fence. He's here in the studio with me now to talk about what he's learned while traveling up and down this key European waterway. Hi, Neil. Welcome to Living Planet. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. So for those who aren't super familiar with Europe's geography or history, can you explain the Rhine's place on the continent and in kind of broader European consciousness? Well, I mean, the Rhine, it, it is a, an iconic river. It's a very international river as well. It runs through six countries from Switzerland all the way to the Netherlands into the North Sea. It was always a crucial trading route, and it was instrumental in making many towns and cities along the Rhine super, super rich. I mean, it's no coincidence that some of the countries on the Rhine, like Luxembourg, like Switzerland, Germany as well, they are very, very rich. So it shaped uh, the continent in many ways regarding trade, but it's also a river which in many ways, well, it's been violated. <laughs> and quite extremely so, also from an environmental perspective. Uh, it was straightened rather drastically in the 19th and 20th century to improve trade, uh, make it easier for shipping. And that had all sorts of knock-on effects for the environment, of course. I want to talk about some of those environmental impacts. Of course, as I mentioned, this summer we've seen some record lows in the water levels there. What sort of problems is drought creating for the Rhine? And What's the outlook for the future? Yeah, uh, those are two very good questions. I mean, first off, uh, the problems that are created directly by the low water levels is, of course, uh, for the fish living in the Rhine. So the water tends to heat up. So the water just gets too shallow that it gets really warm and the fish are dying, essentially? Yeah, or? they are dying. I was down in uh, Bacharach where I spoke to the mayor. That's on the middle Rhine section. And he was telling me one of the first impacts they had this year with the drought was they saw dying fish. Mm. And yeah, I mean, that's something that is a, a direct and visible impact, but they're also more invisible impact to um, the river banks and also the groundwater levels. Because obviously, if the Rhine goes down, uh, the groundwater levels go down. And I was also in a section of the Rhine close to the Dutch border with a biologist who was showing me a renaturalization program where they're trying to reintroduce or bring back the wetlands, which are very crucial for biodiversity. It was quite shocking because he literally, during the interview, we were speaking English, 
and he switched to German at one point because he was just so shocked because he was walking and he saw these trees along the river, which have been there for decades. And this bearing in mind, uh, you know, 2018, we also had a very severe drought. These trees survived 2018. But he was looking at these trees and he says, oh, my God, they can't reach the groundwater anymore. These trees are going to die. Wow. And um, it was something, it gave me goosebumps because, you know, the shock that he had, and he's been working on this project for decades, and he's seen quite a few droughts. And he said, this is, this is new. Yeah, I mean, it has kind of looked like the beginning of autumn here since early August with just the trees turning brown around the river in cities and towns up and down the Rhine. I mean, it, it's kind of surreal. Mm, yeah, absolutely. It felt like also going out. I mean, I was out there last month driving up and down the Rhine, and it felt like an early onset of autumn. And it's, yeah, everything's just bone dry. I mean, we've got rain now. But even so, to answer your coming back to your second question, what does this mean for the future? I mean, experts were telling me that the nature of the Rhine is going to change because with global warming, obviously the glaciers sooner or later will disappear. So that's coming from Switzerland, from the Alps. Exactly. That's coming all the way. It goes into the North Sea, and you can imagine what that's going to do to river levels if rain doesn't equalize it or compensate mm. for it. And so the future basically means we're going to have a far more erratic river. There are going to be you know, more extreme floods. There's going to be more extreme droughts. They have uh, confirmed or told me it'll always be there, but it's just going to be a lot more volatile. And what are some of the things that people along the Rhine are doing to deal with a more volatile river? Or do people just have to learn that rivers aren't necessarily under our control? In terms of flooding, there, there is quite a lot of know-how and experience along the Rhine. There, a lot of, you know, on the architecture you just drive down, you see that a lot of houses, they're built on stilts in certain areas. They are prepared for floods, more so than for drought. Mm. Um, and also experts in, in Koblenz at the International Commission for the Protection of the Rhine, they told me that is something they have to adjust to now. Drought is something that is relatively new at this degree that they're sort of seeing but they're used to focus on flooding. So in terms of what you can do, obviously, like with any other river, we need more catchment areas for the water. And uh, one of the best things we can do would be to bring back more wetlands. But that is true. The more wetlands we have, the easier it's going to be to control these extreme weather events on the Rhine. Mm. And were these wetlands largely stripped out when there was straightening of the Rhine and yeah. whatnot earlier last century. Yeah, I mean, that was another thing. I, I didn't even realize just how extreme this was. I knew the Rhine straightening was quite a big measure, but uh, in the upper Rhine section, it was up to 90% of the wetlands disappeared. Wow. And that is just the amount of species in these wetlands. I mean, even now with the Rhine it being straightened, um, a lot of the species have returned because we've improved a lot on the water quality. Because, I mean, it used to be a really stinking river full of contaminants and chemicals, lots of industry on the Rhine in certain parts. But they really cleaned their act up after a major chemical accident. I think it was in the 80s. And after that, you know, the countries got together and said, we need more monitoring. We're going to hold companies accountable and the Rhine is not going to be used as a dump anymore. So a lot of the species that had disappeared in the Rhine have now returned. We've got mm. almost all the fish back again. So that's good news. Yeah. However... The biologist that I spoke to, uh, who's also you know, renaturalizing parts of the, uh, the river banks and bringing back wetlands, he said, yeah, we've got the species back in the river, but the populations are very small. Mm. And that's due to shipping. If, you, if you've never been on the Rhine, it's like a shipping highway, right? You've got yeah. barges going <laughs> up and down, uh, so, so many. You go to the Rhine, you'll always see a barge. You won't have to wait long. And of course, they create waves. Waves and also noise pollution, which is, uh, as we know, not good uh, for marine life. But uh, the waves then make it difficult for the fish to actually, well, basically get their babies, you know, through uh, the, the early stages because they like to do it in the shallow water by the riverbanks. And then the waves just come and 
all the larvae that just go uh, onto the ground and that's it, they dry up, they die. Mm. So that's why these wetlands are also so crucial. So you need like these side arms where the fish can retreat and where they can, well, essentially multiply. Yeah, kind of little protected spaces. You mentioned the barges, and it is quite noticeable. You sit down by the Rhine, and they're constantly coming up and down. One of the things I find a bit ironic, perhaps, about this drought right now that is made worse by climate change is that so many of these barges moving up and down this river are filled with coal, oil, and gas. Particularly coal is quite visible, I think. Do you think Germany is adequately addressing this contradiction and really looking to reduce its use of these fossil fuels in order to address climate change? Don't want to dampen the mood here, but if I have to be perfectly honest, no, I don't feel they are. If anything, coal is making a bit of a comeback right now uh, with the energy crisis. Obviously, uh, everything's a bit tight with the war in Ukraine and we're having a major gas shortage. Uh, Well, this year we might get through this winter, but structurally we've got a problem there. And coal is basically picking up the slack. The Rhine is a main shipping route for coal. So a lot of the coal that the companies need or that goes to the plants or whatever goes up and down the Rhine. Yeah, it, it is it is paradox that this is happening right now and that you're seeing actually more fossil fuels transported on the Rhine. And I think that's also a reason why, I mean, obviously industry is interested in this. A lot of very energy intensive companies operating along the Rhine, some of the biggest chemical companies in the world like BASF. Um, so German politicians, they are pushing for a deepening of the Rhine. That is their answer to the problems we're seeing now with the drought. They say, okay, well, let's just deepen the Rhine so that the barges can always go through. Because at the moment, the ships, you know, in the drought, they have to reduce their loads by 75%. They're, mm. they're, they're transporting very little so, because otherwise the draft is just uh, too, too deep in the water otherwise. Which has big economic knock-on effects for those companies. And... Yeah, and it also means more ships. It means more traffic. Mm. So it's, it's, sure. it's, it's not essentially a, a good thing. And so politicians say, oh, well, I know what we'll do. We'll deepen the Rhine where the Rhine uh, is most shallow. And, um, yeah, that, again, is going to have negative or adverse effects for biodiversity the groundwater levels might recede even further because then the water gathers more in the river and the banks will run dry. So um, there's a lot of resistance against this. It's just going to be like concrete walls in the river running for Mm. about a mile. And it's going to have all sorts of knock-on effects for tourism, for water sports. Yeah, and of course, this is another major use of the Rhine and also how people even in this region kind of think of the Rhine as a place for recreation and enjoyment. There's even a term for people who live along the Rhine here in Germany, Rhinelanders, right? Mm. I'm curious, how do you think Rhinelanders, how do you think their relationship with this river is changing or their view of this river is changing? I'm not a Rhinelander myself, (laughs) but uh, I mean, I know quite a few Rhinelanders and I think a lot of people that I know who live on the Rhine I mean, they're quite laid back, uh, you know, by German standards, the Rhinelanders. They have this old saying, you know, it could be, it could, you know, whatever will be, will be. And they're quite laid back, you know, even in the face of adversity or drought or catastrophe. But I have seen quite a few people uh, this year who really were quite shocked by the water levels, you know, who go to the Rhine every day, walk up and down. It's like their, their backyard and they're seeing just how poorly the river is doing. And they're generally worried about the future. And they're asking these questions, you know, like the questions you're asking me, what are the experts saying? What, what's going to happen to this mm. river in the future? Are we going to lose it? It's part of their life. I think it's, it's something they've always taken for granted, like we all do. You know, our backyard, it's always there. We don't sort of feel that it's ever going to go away. But climate change is, is definitely changing it. It's transforming it. And this river is going to transform. It is going to change. And I think that is something that a lot of the Rhinelanders 
I don't think they're fully grasped yet, but it is changing. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. And for more about how this key European river is changing, do check out On the Green Fence. You can find it wherever podcasts are found. Thanks so much for coming on Living Planet, Neil. Thank you, Sam. A little taste of the Rhineland there with the song On the Beautiful Rhine. This is Living Planet. I'm Sam Baker. If concerns over dwindling water supplies don't keep you up at night, the actual change in climate might. Many of us have tossed and turned this year as we tried to get some shut-eye during stifling heat waves, including our reporter, Namita Bhatt. She spoke with researchers from the University of Copenhagen who have calculated just how much this heat will affect our sleep. And unfortunately, the scientists predict rising temperatures will rob us of hours, even days of slumber in the coming decades. We're in the middle of a heat wave as I record this here in London. The windows are open, the fan is on, and it's a stifling hot day, 40 degrees Celsius to be exact. Trying to keep cool in a heat wave is difficult. I've tried limiting my time outside, drinking more water, and I've had a couple of showers to try and cool off. Temperatures across the UK and Europe have soared this summer, and climate impacts on the planet are visible just by stepping outside of my front door. Not only are extreme heat waves affecting our planet with droughts and wildfires, but it's affecting our well-being too, particularly our sleep. I don't know about you, but I've been up during the night because of the heat, and new research now suggests that climate change may affect our ability to get a good night's sleep. Sleep is so core to our well-being, and we know that depriving people of sleep worsens numerous aspects of health and mental well-being. Even just a short night of you know, less than seven hours of sleep or less than six hours of sleep, both of which we find increase in probability on really hot nights, can lead to downstream consequences to basic human functions, human performance, productivity, emotional regulation, and even suicidal ideation. That's Kelton Minor, a PhD candidate in planetary social and behavioral data science at the University of Copenhagen. He conducted a study to find whether rising temperatures are eroding human sleep globally. Before our study, relatively little was known about how outside temperature and weather, specifically ambient nighttime temperatures, which are actually warming faster than daytime temperatures in most regions globally due to human-caused climate change, impact human sleep outcomes globally. So that was kind of our point of departure. Miner's research found that higher temperatures will erode 50 to 58 hours of sleep a year for the average person by the year 2099. And we conducted a planet-scale natural experiment where we linked over 10 billion sleep measurements, minute-level sleep measurements, from sleep-tracking wristbands across 68 countries with local weather and climate data. And what we found is that warmer than average nights harm human sleep globally. So people slept less and the probability of having a short night of sleep. So a night of sleep less than seven hours steeply increased as temperatures became hotter. The data collected included samples from 68 populated countries, including large parts of Africa, Central America, South America and the Middle East. 
regions which ranked among the warmest in the world. We found that this hidden human cost of heat was not distributed equally. So the sleep loss per degree of warming was twice as large among the elderly compared to younger or middle-aged adults. It was three times larger for residents of lower income areas versus high income countries. And it was significantly larger for females compared to males. The study published in the journal One Earth found that insufficient sleep is a risk factor leading to several physical and mental health outcomes. These include long-term effects on people's health like reduced cognitive performance, diminished productivity, compromised immune function and more susceptibility to anxiety and depression. According to research, being underslept has effects similar to being drunk and is detrimental to our reaction times. It's been about an hour since I've woken up and I'm waiting for my coffee to kick in. I'd usually have a coffee in the morning regardless of whether I'm tired or not. But today, I feel like I need the caffeine. I'm generally a good sleeper, but the heat definitely did affect it and I'm not sure how productive I'll be today. But perhaps there are other things I can do to get a better night's sleep, even in the heat. So some of the reasons we, we have bad sleep, you know, we, we start with who we are, our genetics. What, what have we inherited from those who came before us? I am a poor sleeper because my mum was a poor sleeper, my grandpa, they are my genes. Um, it, Good sleepers can still have poor sleep. They might have a life event like a divorce or bereavement or having children that can still cause poor sleep. James Wilson is a sleep behavioural environment expert and is also known as the sleep geek. He works with people to help them understand their sleep better and how they can make changes to their behaviour, environment and mindset to help them reach that sleeping sweet spot. Here, here in the UK, we love talking about the weather, don't we? We, we love talking about it. And what happens is, a bit of hot weather, I will not sleep tonight. And because, because sleep is so emotional, it comes true. We convince ourselves we won't sleep. So there is a there is a physiological aspect to it, but also there is an emotional aspect. And around climate change, so we've got we've got sort of eco-anxiety impacting on people's sleep. We're worrying about climate change and many other things that are going in the world at the moment. And then we've got actually climate change itself does affect our sleep. Now, we, we know this. Wilson says to fall asleep, we need some fundamental things. It needs to be dark. We need to have a drop in heart rate. We need to be relaxed and we need to have a drop in core temperature. Miner and his team at Copenhagen University want to dig deeper into their research to investigate equitable policy, planning and design innovations that alleviate the stress of increased nighttime temperatures and promote better sleep for societies across the globe. We know from prior sort of human factors research that the human body has certain limits in terms of being able to acclimatize. It's going to be really important to study this impact of rising outdoor temperatures on the sleep outcomes of vulnerable populations, as well as populations that are confined in their ability to adapt, such as incarcerated populations that are situated in prisons located in hot climates. Vulnerable people such as the elderly, children and poor communities are most affected by extreme heat. Santiago, Chile, like many cities in the global south, faces urban heat challenges. Cristina Huidobro is the city's chief heat officer and says that some parts of the city are more affected than others. Some part of the cities uh, have little or, or inexistent trees or green areas and some constructions are built with really low quality materials with no isolation, etc. So those conditions increase and exacerbate the heat within a specific point of cities. So we're preparing a social media campaign in order to educate people 
about the risk of extreme heat and the measures they can do to protect themselves and their families. And we are creating a portfolio of projects that can address climate change and extreme heat, such as cool roof, urban tree forestation, and also other green infrastructure projects that can help the city to adapt to this new reality. Miner believes that we need to better understand what the actual human cost is of rising temperatures across the globe. Once we start to you know, understand and pick up the pieces of what the true human toll is of, for instance, heat and heat waves and warming temperatures, we can better approximate what the social cost of carbon is. And our results indicate that sleep, an essential restorative process, which is integral for human health and productivity, in order to make informed climate policy decisions moving forward, we need to better account for the full spectrum of possible future climate impacts that extend from today's societal greenhouse gas emissions choices. While I'm looking forward to cooler nights and eight hours of sleep, my struggles help me understand just how fundamental rising outdoor temperatures can affect our physical and mental health. A realization that researchers like Miner and Wilson say is important in finding solutions to the threat climate change poses to global public health and human well-being. I'm Namita Bat for DW in London. You can send us your tips and tricks for beating the heat this year, along with any other environmental questions you might have, to livingplanet at dw.com. Thanks this week to our studio team, Michelle Springer and Vivka Tektmeyer, and to Charlie Shield for help with production. I'm Sam Baker. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the globe. <laughs>